0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. I should also say Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate Christmas and to the to the liberals I'll say Happy Holidays because I know some people now like Happy Holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas but that's a joke by the way. Um, So as usual my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have two guests. Our first guest is David. David is a well-known political journalist in Nigeria and the founder of West Africa Weekly. Our second guest is Frank. Frank is an oil industry professional based in the United States. Now we have a number of topics to discuss today. The first is we're going to discuss the Buhari's refusal to, to sign the electoral act amendment bill secondly we'll be discussing a video clip that's been circulated in the media of president or former president of bason criticizing president buhari then thirdly we'll discuss the some call it arrest other call it others call it kidnap of the Gubernatorial candidate in Imo State, that is Uche Ngwosu, who was allegedly kidnapped or arrested over the weekend. And finally, we'll discuss President Buhari's claim that the discovery of oil in the north of Nigeria will help to balance the oil politics of the country. Now, firstly, to Phoenix, our first topic. electoral act amendment bill the national assembly is dominated by the apc so they had input into this bill they presented it to the president there was a lot of debate back and forth because this was initially presented sometime in i think 2017 or 2018 and then the president said it was too short notice for him to sign but now he's been presented again all from the same party but He's rejected it. Can you can you explain to us, Phoenix? What what is going on with Buhari
1: and the APC? Hi, Michael. Hi, David. Um, and, and Frank. Thanks for joining us today. Um, hello, listeners. Uh, and of course. Uh, uh happy festive season to everyone. I mean yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure where Michael is getting his liberal happy days from. But given that Christmas has passed uh two days now, I, I think it's just good to sell it to talk about the festive season. I, I mean to Buhari and uh I mean I, I think it's not a surprise um to most people who've been watching this particular president and, and the APC that they were not that this uh his refusal to to sign the bill into law um, is not a surprise. I, I I would have been more surprised if he had done so. And if if you if you read the response um, from the NBA president, um, there was something there that struck me that that got me thinking that maybe that's that's actually what what they were trying to do. Because you you rightly point out that I mean. This is an APC president. This is an APC um, majority national assembly in both houses, particularly this national assembly. We know that it is, I mean, we've called it a rubber stamp. They themselves have said that their job is to align with the executive and not to create friction. And they've tried every single opportunity they've gotten to do Buhari's bidding. So why would they send him a bill that they quite clearly knew that he was going to push back unless that was the plan to not have the bill signed and to put something in that was going to give him a way out to say no so if we examine the bill what's really important about this bill and why have why why have nigerians been pushing for it and asking for this for this uh, for as long as i mean over the last uh, five, six years of this presidency, the, the, the key question is around the electronic transmission of results and how that is supposed to bolster um, the electoral process and bring more transparency, bring more trust into the process. Um, of course, we know that um, this was something that we, I mean, was being pushed for during the last uh, general elections in 2019, both as you, as you mentioned. Buhari refused to sign it then, and, and it created a lot of um, um, issues in the sense that even the challenge to the to Buhari's presidency, to him having uh, won the election, was based on the fact that there was some server that was that 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 INEC was claiming was not in existence or not used, and um, I think who who. Came second was claiming that yes, there was a server, and on that server, the results showed that he had won. So of course, they went all the way to the Supreme Court, and and he lost the case. But everyone hoped that, I mean, with 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 time, that that uh, uh, um, electronic capturing and transmission of results will become passed into law and be allowed, and for and that would help move the process forward. But we know that. Uh, and the APC have their sights on 2023. We know how they prosecuted all the elections that we've seen so far. And uh, I mean, in my view, they've never been one to um, aspire to free and fair elections, even though if you look back to 2015, that's what brought them into power. So, the, the, I mean, to the, the reason why he's pushed it back, and I'm sure we'll discuss this, the one point that he's called out is that the bill mandates... Direct primaries. So he's saying that no, you shouldn't mandate direct primaries. You should allow the parties follow their own constitution to conduct primaries however they deem fit, as long as INEC has registered them and allowed those, those that I mean the constitution they have. He has a point, which is why I'm, I'm a bit leaning towards the MBA, what the MBA was saying, in the sense that. Really, why, why is it necessary to mandate it? Of course, mandating direct primaries helps the electoral process. It makes it more transparent. It makes, makes it better. But you see, once you said that this is the only way, of course, you're giving people leeway to say why. You can you can say that this is a good way to go forward, but you can't remove all other ways that we have, which, which are not against... Uh, against normal process. So that's, that's, that's the leg that he's standing on. You know, it's now for us to see what, how NAS uh, responds and what they do about it and see if, <laughs> if they will buck the rubber stamp tag and, and try to veto him. Uh, so that's where we, that's where we are, is pushback. And uh, as I said before, it was not a surprise to me at all. Thank you, Phoenix. I need to ask
0: David. Now, David, Phoenix has said that Buhari's explanation for not signing this bill is the fact that it said direct primaries would be compulsory for all the parties and that would add cost to elections which Nigeria cannot apparently afford. Now, the question is this. Did did the bill have to get to him before he knew this? The, the Senate President and the Speaker are both APC members. Both houses of, of assembly are dominated by the APC. So is Buhari saying they could not have had this conversation
2: before the bill was brought to him? David? Um I'll just keep this these comments short because it's there isn't any point. Yeah, there, there's, there's no need to go by this point for as, as Phoenix already said, um, for those who have observed this president for the past four, five, six years, it's clear what uh, strategy is nine times out of ten. Um, when you are creating legislation that you know very well, you want uh, to not scale through the, the vetting process, you want it to fail, you don't want legislation to get passed into law. One of the ways of doing that is to insert something called the poison pill. And clearly, in this case, that poison bill appears to be this direct primaries thing. Where, I mean, clearly, where you have the, the Senate and the House of Reps heavily dominated by the ruling party, to the point where they have been credibly accused of being a quote unquote rubber stamp National Assembly. And then this went through first reading, second reading, third reading, made it all the way to the president. Somehow, it's the presidency that cuts this thing. This thing passed through both houses of assembly and went through three readings in each house of assembly. And it's the presidency filled with the famously brilliant minds like Mama Buhari and Femi Adishima that caught this thing. And the National Assembly couldn't cut. I mean, come on, you know what's really going on here? This guy never had any intention whatsoever of signing the Electoral Amendment Act, because to sign the Electoral Amendment Act will be to sign his own party out of power in 2023. Because that much is clear, because 2020 election is essentially going to be a referendum on um, his his record as president for the past eight years. That, uh, do people want more, more of this or do they want something different? And it's clear what people's choice would be if they're allowed to actually have their choice. So kind of like what the, the well, I, I hope, <laughs> I'm not going to get some flat for this comparison, but kind of like how uh, some parts of the, the right-wing formation in the U.S., the Republican formation in the U.S. have decided that um, they are never going to win another election if there is an actual democratic process that installs the U.S. president. So, they're going to try and disenfranchise as many people as possible. That's their way into power to define the, the democratic process. That's There's something similar going on. Nigeria Some people have decided that the, the sort of um, mockery of an electoral process that we have right now which actively disenfranchises most registered voters from exercising their franchise that this should continue that people should it, there should be no attempt to make it uh, easier or more or more accessible for people to vote because the more people vote, the more people take part in the electoral process, essentially, the lower their chance of remaining in power or, for, or, or getting anywhere near power again. The entire uh, uh, political strategy now revolves around keeping people disenfranchised. It's almost like maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I would almost use the term apartheid to describe it. It's almost coming like a type of minority by design, where you use the system, you use the the, the, the legal system to sort of arm-twist the country into keeping you and your tiny group of people in power, knowing full well that if the country was allowed to properly exercise its franchise, if there was such a thing as a free and fair election, even with, you know, within all the current constraints that Nigeria currently has, you would you would get nowhere near power. That much is clear. You know, this 2019 election, for example. Shows very clearly that without the the apparatus of states being heavily involved in uh, in uh, the vote rigging, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, bullying of voters, you know that sort of thing. Without those things, why would not have won the twenty nineteen election. And even even with those things, the the you know, quote unquote win that that he he. You know, like, supposedly, is heavily contested. Many people in the know claim that the challenger Atiku, actually won that election convincingly, and that the result was the total sham. You know, so it's clear what is going on. Buhari has no intention of, even if he himself leaves power and which is given, he has no intention of of letting his political formation um leave, leave hold of power. So this is just one of the, the attempts that is being made to entrench. This sort of minority group in power at the expense of everyone else.
0: Thank you, David. Frank, I need to bring you in at this point because I know in 2015 you were you were a supporter of Buhari. That that's past gone. But what I'm trying to understand from you, Frank, is are, are you yourself amazed that Buhari, who came into into office because of a free and fair election now seems to be reluctant to build on that. Because on many occasions, Buhari has assured the public and the media that he will conduct a free and fair election in 2023, but the indications are he seems to always bulk at the opportunity to reform the electoral process. So Frank, can you talk me through, is this the Buhari you expected and why do you think he's doing this, Frank? (laughs)
3: <laughs> Michael, I, I don't know why you're outing me here now, but um in, in my opinion, Buhari's words hold no water. You know, it, it, you it, as much as people want to paint it, that the man has integrity. Uh yes, I supported him in 2015, you know, based on you know my own personal assessment that he, he has integrity, but the man has no personal integrity. You know, he, you cannot hold him by his words. I like, he, he, his words mean nothing. He doesn't care. Whatever he says, um, he's just saying it's, you know, for the pleasure of the people at the point in time he was saying those things, you know. And I, I see that, you know, he, just like David said, he wants to perpetuate his part, party in power. And, you know, it, it's really sad because over time, between maybe 2011, um, 2015, Elections have improved before he came to power. Presidential elections improved in Nigeria before he came to power, but you know, with his the ones he conducted have, you know, been deplorable. 2019 was deplorable. You know, I was I was watching um, violence, you know, and nobody. It's almost like no, nobody said anything. Nobody nobody has been brought to the book for those violence that happened in Lagos. You know, certain areas prevented from voting. You know, people threaten not to vote. Um, you know, so his words really mean nothing. And this is, uh, while I would say he's not the boy I thought I knew, this is actually the Bwari for who he is. You know, he doesn't care. Um, only certain things mean anything to him. And, you know, um, good elections, perfect elections, better elections is, is not one of those things that mean anything to him. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Frank. No, I wasn't in quotations outing you. I was just trying to uh, see if you had changed your perception of him and if you still held him in the regard he used to. For the final question on this topic, I'm going to ask uh, Phoenix. Phoenix, this, this attorney general, um, Abubakar Malami, senior advocate of Nigeria, who was the one who provided Buhari's explanation. Um, the report says he he gave this explanation to radio kano and from reports and commentary on the attorney general they, he always seems to there's there seems to be this tendency that he has he adopts a very they call it sectional agenda he always seems to be speaking to some northern radio station or one other time he was broadcasting in hausa instead of in english is is this an issue that malami is explaining to radio kano as opposed to any of the other national or
1: radio stations. I, I think without you know, I, I didn't read the report that you're referring to, and and um, I'm I'm not aware of the context. So without knowing the context, I can't tell because I can't, I can't say if he if he directly reached out to Radio Kano to give them this piece of information, or maybe I mean he was caught somewhere or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But you are you are right. I mean, there have been times when he has spoken about issues of state in Hausa, or chosen to use a medium that is only listened to by a section of the of the country. So there's no doubt that that is Malamis' emo. So although I don't know this this current context, and I'm not one to always jump into conclusions. It doesn't sound strange to me, and that's and that's a problem. You're talking about the the. Uh, chief law officer of the country. The, I mean, how do you expect um, for his opinions to be without bias, for his opinions to, to really speak to the true intent of the constitution when he's at, advising the president? We know Malami's antecedents from his days in the CPC where he was their lawyer. And we've seen his work over the last six years. So anyone who's still in doubt of, as to where his allegiances are or what what kind of a person he is, and, and he's not being fit for the office he has held for for six years, I mean, should clear that doubt from their mind. I mean, we've we've talked about Malami several times on this on, on our podcast, and there's no doubt that he's by long mile the worst attorney general that we've had. I mean, for things like apart from of course all the allegations of corruption around him. But always the fact that, I mean, if, if, you, if you say something on a point of law, you, you need to just know that it's absolutely rubbish. And most times he's talking out of his behind, doesn't know do what he's talking about. And, and also this sectionalism, which is always plain to see. So I don't even think he's worth talking about at this point. Thank you, Phoenix.
0: Um, Attorney General Malami, if you're listening, just want to clarify that it was Phoenix
1: who said that you were talking out he, of your he knows now because he knows. I've told him many times on the podcast now, he knows. Lieutenant <laughs> <laughs> I hope you, you, you can
0: see was Felix said. It's not me. But anyway, on to our second topic. You just wait there, Felix, because I want to start with you as well. Uh, president Obasanjo was speaking on a video, and he was complaining that an African head of state, I think it was the president of Togo, and a former head of state both approached him to more or less complain that Nigeria under Buhari is not showing up on the international scale, on the international scene. Uh, there are many problems in Africa that they would have expected Nigeria to show leadership on. For example, the, the, the crisis in Ethiopia or some of the other regional issues in, in West Africa. And their complaint is that at every, every point, Buhari seems to be missing in action. And Obasanjo in response then said, well, that this is the best you can get from Buhari, that he's doing his best, just that his best is more or less incompetent. So the first question to to Phoenix, um, do you agree with Obasanjo's assessment?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I agree. I mean, I think that that is clear to to most people who've listened to us for the last uh, almost two years indeed i agree but you see the, the, the thing that that i find more interesting is is you know is the confirmation of the paradox that that Obasanjo brings to the nigerian policy, right so we we talk a lot about i mean it so he, he is the embodiment of how, of how to diametrically <laughs> opposing um um if things, let me put it that way, can be true at the same time. One can always look and say, yes, Obasanjo has been the best president that we've had, if not in this democratic dispensation since 1999, perhaps since, since time that Nigeria came together. But at the same time, you can say that he is a key person. And in fact, he is critical to the problem that we have today and to the emergence of Buhari that has set us back twenty dec. Uh, uh, I want to say twenty two decades. I mean, it, it, Buhari has known. Uh, sorry, Obasanjo has known Buhari for such a long time that for him to be coming out and telling us that this is Buhari's best it's not news now. So you knew this all along, but you were happy to have this guy take over in twenty fifteen just because you you wanted to spite the person who was who was sitting in place. And now that the, the the issues that you would have been aware of at that point in time have metastasized, you are now coming out to tell us what you already knew from time. I mean, what are we supposed to do with that information? So, I mean, so with, with every day, I mean, we saw him, you know, in 2019, I mean, decide to, to back uh Atiku against Obasanjo in, against sorry, against Buhari in trying to walk back his mistake. But he would never be able to leave that down. I mean, when, when you have elders and he is supposed to be an elder statesman now, you, you, they're supposed to point you in the right direction, not, not set you back. And that's what he did. Um it won't it wipe away the good that he did, of course, which which as, as you will with Obasanjo, some of it came with, with bad. But I mean, every day it's becoming clearer that the debacle of 2015 and what we've had to live with in the six years that have followed, he um, really at this point in time, sh- short of just keeping quiet, you, just, you, should just, you should just really stop reminding us.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Um, David, I want to get your thoughts because I know you are a political journalist, so maybe you have more insight into this issue, because Phoenix's general point is that Buhari knew, I mean, Obasanjo knew that Buhari was not up to the job, but because he wanted to fight Jonathan, he backed Buhari. Are you seriously telling me that that is the depth or that's the extent of Obasanjo's, let's uh, say, duplicity? Like there wasn't any of that hidden agenda? Maybe He saw another side of Buhari that we hadn't seen. Is is
2: that your assessment as well, David? Yes. um, I think sometimes because of the undeniable, uh, at least in the economic space, the undeniable results that we saw um, during the Obasanjo uh, administration, dispensation between 1999 and 2007, um, maybe we sometimes elevate that guy to a status that he hasn't actually earned. It's easy to forget that at the end of the day, this guy was because he's just another one of the class of 66. He's one of them. He's one of the smarter ones and he's, a more, he's one of the more market-oriented ones. And the, the market reforms and the, the general uh, state and market reforms that he, he put into place in 2009 and 2007, were what pretty much gave a lot of us the, the lives that we have now, the little optimism about hope we have now, even the reasons why some of us who may be in Nigeria can even take part in this conversation on Zoom now—you know—these are the results of the, the actions that he was responsible for, which is fine. But it's always important to remember that this guy is still one of them; he's still part of that establishment; he's still one of the bastards. The terrible things that those people did for the very sort of petty and base and, you know, very on, uh, you know, anti-intellectual reasons that they did those things. He is also guilty of, of taking actions for those reasons. Don't forget that. This was a guy whose solution to a bit of unrest in, in a, a town called Odi was ascending the army and do the same thing that Buhari did to, to, to the Shiites in Zaria states and to the entire protesters in Lagos. It's always easy to forget because there was so much economic expansion going on, there was so much good news in other spaces for us to dig into. We forget that this guy is just another one of them. You know, he deserves the credit he gets for the economic side of things, but as a politician, he was very much one of them. And you could see it even from the decisions he made in 2007. We started from the decision about who was going to replace him. If he was bear in mind the entire sequence of events that led to Buhari becoming president in the first place was 100 percent of Basenjo's fault. Basenjo knowingly placed a Sikh Umar Musa Yaradua as his successor. He knew that this fellow wasn't going to make it through his term. He knew there is no way he did not know that. He knew he was the president. He had access to all the security intel in West Africa. He knew every, he knew that this guy wasn't going to make it at the end of his term. He intentionally that guy there and created the, the, the circumstances that led that that domino sequence that, that led to the disaster of 2015 if that hadn't happened if he had been able to get over himself and allow his, his vice as uh, Abu Bakr to take, take over from him then then that would have been the eight years of a, of another presidency that was supposed to happen between 2007 and 2015. Then in 2015, we would have had the southern president. By now, some of us on this phone call might be in Nigeria. We might be having completely different conversations altogether. And by now, I think it's fair to say that Muhammad Buhari might not even be alive. That's the truth. So he might not even be around. So I've caused the havoc. He has caused now. This all started with Obasanjo himself. So it's important to remember that Obasanjo is not uh, He's not an angel in any of this. He's actually the villain, not just a villain, he's the villain. The villain before Bufari so
0: Thank you, David, uh, for your uh, description of the, the man or passenger. Now to Frank, there's another aspect of the conversation that I wanted to raise with you. When I saw that video, I think I said it on Twitter at the time, I felt whilst Obasanjo may have been right in his assessment of Buhari, I did not think it was appropriate for him to say that, especially as the person who was complaining was a president and a president spoke to Obasanjo in confidence about issues to do with Buhari and it would make the relationship between Togo and Nigeria a bit difficult if Obasanjo is going on TV to basically criticize Buhari, telling telling him that this is what the Togolese president is saying. So do you agree, Frank? Do you think it was right for Obasanjo to say that? Or no? Are you are you there, Frank? Are you hear me? Are you there?
3: Yeah, I missed some part of your statement, though. You, you want to repeat it a little? Okay, no, just saying...
0: Do you think it was appropriate for Obasanjo to reveal the details of his conversations with the Togolese president? Because that would make the relationship between Nigeria and Togo a bit difficult. If a president is telling you something in confidence and they go on TV and say it, that this is what Togolese president said about Buhari, w- wouldn't that make it difficult?
3: Well, uh, it depends on the leverage Nigeria has over them. What, what, what can Buhari do, really? And um, uh, Buhari will probably just you know, not pay attention to what Obasanjo has said. And, you know, if you ask me personally, I I don't have any regard for things Obasanjo say because um, Obasanjo is someone who had the opportunity to fix Nigeria, really, really fix Nigeria twice, right? But he rather chose to pursue, uh, would I say, personal or um, very unusual interests instead of putting the country first, you know? So Buhari may have the same opinion where he doesn't regard Obasanjo as well. Now, even though he sought his um, support in 2015 to um, kick Jonathan out and all that, it's very, very likely that uh, 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 Buhari doesn't respect Obasanjo's opinions anymore. And um, usually when Obasanjo or Jonathan goes out for election monitoring like this, right, you find that within a few days, they visit the villa, you know, to kind of present um, whatever findings or uh, report back per se, you know, in quotes. But I haven't seen Obasanjo do that in recent in recent time, despite all his many travels and um, election monitoring all over the continent. So that tells you that the, the relationship is already frosty, and uh, he might just be saying that too because you know. He's, he's trying to get a lot of load out of his chest, and but irrespective of that, Bowari doesn't look like who respects Sebastian opinion. Um, so Borari may not take it seriously and you know wouldn't do anything to Togo because he, he thinks the Togolese president uh doesn't respect him. No, I don't think so.
0: Thank you, Frank. Uh, let me check with Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix, do you share Frank's assessment that? It doesn't really matter what Obasanjo said that uh, because we have no leverage with or with Togo. Or if Togo doesn't have any leverage, then it doesn't really matter. Or, or do you think that there's an issue there of
1: breaching uh, confidence? I think it does matter, and I, and and I don't I don't agree with Frank that uh, Nigeria doesn't have leverage over Togo. There's no country in the ECOWAS that Nigeria doesn't have leverage over. Um, and I think I absolutely agreed with you when I saw your your statement on on the on the issue on on Twitter. I think um, you know we know he's one for staring the pot, but I mean this was uh, it was wrong on 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 every level. I mean you don't disclose those kind of you you can there are ways you can say yes in my travels. I mean people. Uh, the various leaders, you know, keep asking me what's going on with Nigeria without specifically saying the president of Togo said this. Of course, you are creating a diplomatic incident, very clearly. I mean, (laughs) there's no two ways about it Yeah, I mean, the next time they meet, or I'm very sure some cables will have passed, that would have been been about clarifying this issue between them. Uh, I would not be surprised if the president of Togo or somebody would have, of course, reached out to Godfrey is it or Godfrey. I don't know his first name, or him, to clarify the the statements. So it's uh, he, it, of course, he, but but that's of us on He could have been doing it for the, for that exact reason to stir up something to, you know. And, and and that's why I agree with Frank. Um, yes, there might be a frostiness in the relationship between Obasanjo and Buhari, so he doesn't have a problem throwing a grenade into his shop just to shake things up a bit. Uh, for that very reason, but it was uh, for somebody who's who has access to leaders, for somebody who's supposed to be a. A, a, a someone they look up to was was wrong in my view
2: to have shared private conversations in, in public. Michael. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize I, I was on mute. No,
0: I, I was saying I, I agree that. Obasanjo should not have uh, done that, especially as it will affect the relationship between Nigeria and Togo. But then again, that's the summary of who Obasanjo is. He throws grenades and doesn't really think much about the consequences and lets other people people worry about
1: uh, issues. But I think he does think about the consequences. That's exactly what he wants. He's smart. I mean, uh, David said said, said this and I totally agree with him. He knows what he's doing. He's been in this game for long enough to know what he's doing. He did it on purpose. So let's let's not give him a way out by saying he didn't think about the consequences. No, he knew what he was doing. He what he was. No, no I, I mean in the sense that
0: it's like the Buhari thing. He was angry with Jonathan, wanted to spy Jonathan, therefore supported Buhari. And then he gets a sober moment when he then realizes that, oh, yes, I've put Buhari in office, but there's going to be disaster all around. So the question is, did he really want disaster all around, or was he just so angry, Jonathan, that he wanted Buari in office? I suppose that's the
1: the question. Well, it's a great point. Okay. And it's one to discuss. Maybe we'll find another show because I I think I mean he must have known and but didn't think he would be it would be that bad that there were instruments of state or maybe politics that would keep it in check and it didn't happen. So yes, yeah. Well on to our Next topic, which is in
0: Emo State, Pope Uzodima, some call him the Supreme Court Governor of Emo State. I know he doesn't seem to like that title, but that's what they call him, the Supreme Court Governor of Emo State. Um, it's alleged that he sent police to arrest one of his rivals, uh, Uche Umosu who happens to be the son-in-law of the former governor rochas okorocha it's it's all very messy hope is an apc member rochas okorocha is an apc member yet he's sending the police to arrest rochas's nephew and the 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 so-called arrest was so messy that people actually thought and newspapers reported that ucheonwuosu had been kidnapped because of the way there was shooting everywhere in the church they dragged him out they were just pandemonium. I saw some of the videos. The, the, these, these guys were basically just shooting like they were in a war zone. So to let me start with David. Um, what is happening in, in emo State, David? Why is Hope Uzonima apparently out of control? And what, what does he want from Uche? And why do they feel the need to desecrate the church in the name of arrest?
2: So I'm not, um, I'm not going to pretend to be versed in the specifics of the internal political equation of the Muslim, what I do know authoritatively is that um, ever since there was a change of power, you know, even though technically, uh, Hope and Rochas are supposedly you know, members of the same political party, they really don't like each other. And apparently Rochas, um, when he was in power, I came to think of the oldimo state as something like his, uh, his personal belongings or something of that nature. He had this idea that uh, he was gonna handle that the governorship to, was it his son-in-law, his nephew or something like that, like his son-in-law. And there was, a, there was all sorts of craziness that went on there. So when Hope ended up becoming the, the, the APC candidate, that was a problem in itself. And then all you know, the chicanery that went into you know, making Hope the governor, even though he came forth in the election, you know that's still something I've not yet wrapped my mind on. So, from what I can tell, there is still there's a there's a, there's a lot of um, political and economic um, rivalry going on between uh, Hope and Watchers. One thing that people often don't or don't realize about why um, uh, political transitions in Nigeria are so bitter and acrimonious. That's not, in addition to the fact that those with power don't want to leave power, they don't want to lose power, it's also the fact that they would have spent the previous eight years personalizing, you know, using the powers of states to personalize the economy of that domain to the fullest extent possible. And they know that when they leave power, the next person is coming after them is going to disrupt a lot of things that they have set in place for themselves and for their families. So leaving power is like, is like holding on to power is like holding on to life, holding on to your source of livelihood for them. And I think that's what definitely in the case of in the case of Rogers, that has definitely been a thing where um, obviously you know, much much of this information isn't in the public domain. Even, even people like me don't have access to it. But there there are a lot of sort of um, off book things that have been done or you know underground Transactions and contracts that have been awarded and whatnot, and um, it's not as if hope oh, is some kind of anti-corruption crusader. Far from it, he's probably just trying to position on his own. People. He's probably just trying to take about what the previous guy did and do the same thing but put his own <laughs> stamp on it. But obviously, the previous guy isn't taking that lightly. And as, as it happens, the previous guy he's also a senator, so it's, you know, it's not a complete weakening. As it is, so there's this. Um, there's a back and forth. There's a battle, and it so happens that the person who has access to the person who has who has actual uh, executive power now, obviously, is the governor, because the senator doesn't have executive power. Senator's power is only implied; it's not direct. But the governor is always its more like a dictator. The governor can actually order his commissioner of police to do something, and then you get scenes like what you saw, where the police storm a church and you know that sort of thing. And by the way, that sort of thing. Um, I think if if there's anyone from the, from the Southeast who is on this court, I think will back me up on this. This sort of thing is a mainstay of politics in the Southeast. There's a unique sort of political culture in that part of the country makes it such that even though things like, you know, like uh, the Catholic church is like, it's, 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 it's sacred in that part of the country. But when it comes to this sort of dispute, nothing is beyond, being desecrated, absolutely nothing. Not a man's wife, not a church, nothing. Nothing is beyond it. So that's what we're seeing. And what remains to be seen is what exactly it is that is causing this particular round of tension. Don't forget that, I think it was last year or the year before, where we saw the spectacle of some of the projects that have been executed by the workers' administration and the state. Then Hope came in and rose in the bulldozers. I started demolishing buildings all over the state for no, you know, the, the reason supposedly given was that buildings were not structurally sound. Um, there was never any official reports that was endorsed by uh, the what's it called current as the Nigerian uh, society of engineers to, to indicate that this was the case. I remember there was, a, there, was a, there was a children's hospital that was that was built. It was pretty much at the stage of completion. It hadn't been equipped yet. And the hope came in and they rolled in the bulldozers and they leveled the entire thing. This was like a like five or six story structure, huge structure, and they just leveled the whole thing. And I remember posting about it on Twitter, like, what? Why are we so destructive in this part of the world? You know, but It remains to be seen what exactly it is in this particular case that they're fighting about. They're always struggling over one thing. or I think in the next few days, we'll fight and get some clarity about what exactly it is that they're fighting about. But... It's,
0: Please, Thank you, David. Let me go to Frank before I go to Phoenix. Frank, there's there's one question I need to ask because I know you you worked in the you've worked across Nigeria, so maybe you've had a lot of interaction with the Nigerian police. But it's one thing to say you want to arrest someone, but why do they have to deploy so much? As, as they say in Nigeria, they say so much gra-gra, where they're scattering the place, shooting, barging people out of the way, slapping people, all because they wanted to arrest one man. Is is, is this a normal way for a, a police force to, to behave,
3: uh, Frank? While well, 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 while it's not normal for a police force to behave, it's you know it seems very on brand for the Nigerian police. You know, um, the Nigerian police really they're they're Uh, you know, in my opinion, they are just like uh, on on a larger scale, right? They are just a revenue generating organization for senior officers. And, you know, with, with reference to this particular incident, you know, they're just a tool for power play, you know, while, you know, the reports don't really say that um, the, the arrest was ordered by the state governments, you know, but it's weird that, you know, you have to exert so much power just to arrest somebody you don't have a warrant uh, you don't say the reason and you have to go in such a place where you you know cause danger or expose a lot more people to danger because you want to arrest just one person it's really weird but it's it's very on brand for the nigerian police if you ask me and in, in my experience with nigerian police it's very very on brand you know uh, you know they they, they to me, they don't—they don't even behave like a—they're a, a, not out there to protect any of the citizens, right? They're just there to protect the interest of the highest bidder per se, right? Or whoever is in power at that point in time, you know. So yes, it's very unbranded for the Nigerian police, if you ask me. And uh, you know, just like David said, where in in the southeast uh you know it's more like a show of shame if you recall very well during uh when ingige was governor of anambra state and all that was happening you know despite having the 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 blessings of the presidency all you know all what was happening was kind of having the shadowy blessings of the presidency you could see how the police acted you know where the police was being used to to arrest the governor to dislodge um you know properly elected um officials of states You know, so it's very on brand for the Nigerian police. um, If you ask me really, thank you. Thank you, Frank. You bring in uh, Phoenix. Uh,
0: Phoenix, Emo State. Uh, A number of people have said that Rochas also behaved like this when he was governor and David who made the point, he ran the place like a family business. Now hope has taken over and Hope seems to be doing the same thing. Um, Why is the APC functioning like this? Is there, I don't know, internal mechanisms to get Hope and Rochester to sit down and solve this problem? Why this level of of violence and uh, gross abuse of human rights, Phoenix?
2: I I think you
1: hit the nail on the head with uh, the the question around, are there no internal, is there any internal mechanism for, for addressing this? I think anyone who's watched the APC knows that there, there really is no internal mechanism for handling stuff like this because they're not they're not structured like a like a proper party is, in the sense that where I mean, so the the party has come together as a result of um a number of parties deciding that oh PDP had become too too powerful and therefore we needed to come together to to um, compete against them in 2015, and of course they brought all their agendas together, and they had this unholy alliance that uh, um, enabled them to win the election. As with other things that were obviously in play at that time, but it wasn't set up as with a proper um, um, governance structure. So that's why you see every time there's always tension between the various parts. It's 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 either. And then, of course, the the, the power in in Nigeria, the, the presidency is so powerful that at the end of the day, it is whoever becomes president that wills the power. And you def- and you then have a president like uh, Buhari, who is quite sectional, who is quite clannish, and of course surrounds himself with people that he trusts and has known. So the Malamis of this world, the, pe- the people who have been with him from his CPC days, let's in a few APC people, you know. And, and, and a few, sorry, uh, people from the ACN and, and and all of that, and 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 so they have that shaky balance where, okay, I mean, we all hold our different areas of or spheres of influence, but we know that the one, the one true power is with Buhari, and therefore everyone uh, makes nice and, and and plays along. In the first term of Buhari's presidency. Rochas was very much in, in, that, in, a, in that circle. You would notice that, I mean, he was the one representative. He had the, the from the Southeast within the APC, he had the most, uh, how would I put it? The most, um, the, the, the most aura, the most, uh, the largest persona which was closest to, to Buhari and he, of course he was in light and everything was working well. Of course, by the time they went into the second term, I mean they, it became something happened in that relationship that that pushed that pushed him aside. He obviously had somebody else that he wanted to to be governor rather than Hope, and that's where I mean one can uh, see where their their issues have have come from. But you see, the, the APC not having that proper internal governance structure, that proper. Um, channels for having conversations, for for addressing something like this in-house, for calling two key members of the party and saying to them, for the sake of the party, put aside some of your differences or what can we do to walk through those differences to to put the party in good life rather than having all these warring factions and all these things that you're doing. It doesn't exist. And it's also a failure of Nigerian politics. You see it as well. I mean, it, it seems like I'm piling on APC, but anybody who's been... Following our politics since 1999, we remember obviously PDP had its own fair share, which led to people leaving the PDP and going to join APC, to going to join to, to set up APC. So, it, it, for me, it's it's. But primarily, when I look at the APC, and that's why 2023 is going to be a a tipping point for them in the sense that that figurehead is no longer going to be available to run anymore. It was easy to to queue up behind Buhari and his 6 million, whatever million votes that he always got from the North and bring other pieces together to help him get there. But once he is out of the picture, that's when you will begin to see a lot of this um, infighting because there was never anything that held them together. There there were no common values, no common principles that they all gathered on. It was just a question of we needed to Form an alliance to enable us to take our PDP. Once they took our PDP, they did not have a proper governance structure to fall back on to say, okay, this is how we will govern. This is how we would assign roles and responsibilities. This is how we will share influence and power and make sure everything is fair. Because that didn't happen. That's why some people grabbed, some people waited their turn. And of course, when they now got there, they started dealing with the other people who who didn't let them get a Piece of the pie when when he was there, when they were on the outside looking in. So for me, next year is going to be super interesting in the run-up to the 2023 elections, and we'll begin to see more of these issues uh, you know come to the fore. And and things can get even more dramatic and and dare I say even more dangerous because people become more desperate as, as as those elections come close.
0: Thank you. Phoenix. It'll be interesting to see, yes, because I think you're right. The APC appears to coalesce around Buhari, and if Buhari is not there, it's unclear that there's any strong character that can hold them together, but time will tell. Now onto our final topic, oil. Buhari said the discovery of oil in, or the the apparent discovery of oil in northern Nigeria will help to balance the politics of oil. Now this statement generated a lot of controversy on social media because it seemed to be implying that somehow the North finally finding oil will help to counterbalance the influence that the Niger Delta has. So firstly, to to David, when did the North find oil? Is, Is this a recent discovery and nobody else seems to have
2: reported? So um, the nature basin uh, is on paper. It's uh, it it has what you call uh, hydrocarbon there, in which is which I'm sure Frank will explain to you. It's an industry term for so there are hydrocarbons there somewhere. Hydrocarbons can be oil, can be natural gas. It's basically something that you can that that you can burn, right? Um, Now, the fact that there are hydrocarbons present in a particular place is a completely different issue to there being a possibility for oil exploration in that place, right? Even in places where the oil is present in commercial quantities, it doesn't always mean that it's commercially viable to exploit those oil reserves. And I'll give you an example of that. In the US, for example, a few decades ago, um, the uh, what's it Saudi Arabia was by far the world's largest oil producer. By far, the US used to import most of its its, uh, its energy requirements from from the Saudis. Today, the US is largest oil producer in the world, and the US actually exports oil as well. The reason that has happened is is not because the US discovered oil reserves recently that they didn't know what they had before. No, they, those oil reserves have been discovered as far back as the eighties but it simply wasn't commercially viable to exploit them then because the method for exploiting those oil reserves, which is known as fracking, was simply the technology was simply too expensive to implement at scale then, uh, versus the price of crude oil then. But crude oil prices now, and then the relative cheapness of technology now has made fracking commercially viable, which is how come the US produces so much oil now? So it's a similar situation to the, Okay, there are two basins in the north, which are supposedly all there, the Lake basin and the so-called, uh, what's it called, uh, Benway Trough, right? Now, the fact that there is oil in a particular place and several oil majors, including Ajib, Eni, I believe Total as well, I'm not sure Shell has, but I know for a fact that Ajib and Eni have done so, have uh, spent years, I think this was in the in the 80s and the 90s, they invested a lot of money trying to see if they could they could uh, find commercially exploitable oil in those places. And each time their reports came back with the same thing. There is oil, there's actually oil there, but it's not, first of all, the quantities that, that will make it commercially exploitable are simply not there. And then secondly, the, the type of investment that will need to be made to even exploit the oil in the first place it's not the type of investment that they are prepared to put money into because Nigeria is not a, it's not a place where you make certain you know there, there are certain types of investments you don't make in a place like Nigeria because Nigeria is a place where eight years from now you don't know whether the country will still exist and that's just a, that's just a simple fact that's not going it's not an exaggeration in 2014 when we're talking about 2015 election we genuinely did not know if by May 2015 Nigeria would still exist as an entity that's the kind of country Nigeria is so the type of money that it would take to the kind of type of investment it would take to put in the technology needed to make that those oil reserves uh, exploitable it's not the type of money that any oil major is prepared to pump into any of those places especially not now where those places are actual literal conflict zones so there's, there's actually hot kinetic warfare going on there so there is no way anyone is going to set, put putting billions of dollars of their money, sending highly skilled uh, professionals who are expatriates and who are in high demand globally, to go to somewhere in Gombe or in Adamawa or wherever to go and man some oil exploration. It's not going to happen. Even even uh, the 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 proven the 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 producing wells that are inland to Nigeria that are that are on on. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, yeah, inland is the word. If you've noticed over the past decade or so, most of the oil majors have quietly divested from all of Nigeria's inland oil assets, and they've all moved offshore. So they've been selling off the inland the inland assets to indigenous oil exploration firms. So that's where you have your your ITOs and them. But that's where they are finding their fortune now. But all your totals, and your agips and your shares, and they are moving offshore. Nobody wants to be unsure anymore in Nigeria, and that's even in the Niger Delta, which isn't anywhere near as unsafe as the North and the Middle Belt right now. So why on earth would anyone think that there is a possibility that an oil major is going to put its money and its personnel in harm's way in, in, in such a manner by, by going to exploit oil in It's not going to happen. And the evidence of this is that every single time, because the Nigerian government, especially ever since Buhari came in, it seems like every 10 working days, this same announcement comes out in some form or the other. How we discovered, I remember there was a time the NNPC actually put out this, like a press release, essentially advertising like, hey, we have this, we have this fantastic new oil discovery and we're looking for joint venture partners. So please uh, indicate your interest. That well, was, was such nonsense. Like, why are you doing this? Nobody who knows a thing about the oil industry. I mean, I'm not an oil industry insider by any means. I'm just a journalist. But even from my fairly cursory knowledge of what goes into oil exploration, I know that the, the chance of this happening is approximately zero. It's not going to happen. But the Buhari government is obsessed with this idea of somehow finding, you know, discovering oil did not, and that discovery oil in is somehow going to fix all the economic and political problems because somehow even though if you read the statement Buhari made when he made that statement about uh, him being thankful that he uh, has to balance the blah, blah 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 the preceding statement to that was directly contradictory to the statement that I uh, said so the preceding statement was that uh he knows that oil, oil is oil is becoming irrelevant and then immediately after that he said but we are happy that this oil is going day so you could you can see that even when they try to acknowledge that the world is moving is is moving into uh, an age that they are not familiar with that things are going to have to change even when they try to acknowledge that change is inevitable you just see that they are not really capable of thinking in such a way as to uh, indicate that they are capable of, of adapting to change the same way Nigeria was in nineteen seventy-seven is how they think it should always be. And it's how they think it still is, in fact. They're not really capable of, of evolving, of thinking in any kind of different way. So in Bahari's mind, his problem in the South is down to the fact that, oh, those people think that they are, they are, they are feeding us, that's my people, like, like he's, who he considers to be his people, i.e. the Arewa political constituents. Now those those Kaffirs down south think that they are they are feeding us with their oil or if we can discover oil in the north then we no longer first of all we no longer need them politically we have numbered them at least on paper even though I mean geographically it's, it's, yeah, the idea of the north being more populated than the south is nonsensical but in Nigeria's unique political um, <laughs> political geography apparently the north has more people than the south so we have numbered them and then, you know, if you have oil, then that solves our economic problem too. You know, so the idea of building an economic base, uh, transitioning from a primary uh, primary production society, which is an, an agrarian subsistence so farming society, to, to an industrial or post industrial society, it doesn't have those thoughts in itself head. It doesn't have the capacity. All it can think of is how do I get from, from farm to, you know, this from farm to Abuja basically and skip all the, the, the steps in between. And the answer is oil, which is how which is how Abuja got built in the first place. It's you know, <laughs> anybody who, who has who has studied A-level economics understands that Abuja is a white elephant. Abuja has no reason to exist. Right? It's a, it's a city that was funded entirely by all so It's built in the middle of nowhere purely for reasons of political expediency and has zero economic economic value to Nigeria. It's sustained purely by government subvention. And that's how they think that uh, the North going into the 21st century is going to build its future using this thing called oil. So at the end of the day, it just becomes clearer and clearer that I just really hope that in 2023, that a change of power actually takes place and that the conversation can, can start to move forward. For the first time in eight years because it feels like every time I appear on this podcast I'm seeing a different variation of, of, of the same thing and honestly it just it's, it's, it gets very tiring.
0: Thank you David. If I go to Phoenix let me let me bring Frank in. So Frank I, I know you're in the oil industry so is it is it true that the oil majors are not interested in exploring for oil in the north because they don't think it's commercially viable? When your time in Nigeria, where you were working for oil companies there, was, was anybody interested in in finding
3: oil there? Not at all. You know, it's, David is very correct. It's very true. You know, it, it, it's like um, oil, oil exploration is economics, really. You know, and it's like sugar and ants if these guys know that there's sugar there, right, they would all head there, you know, like put place in the cube of sugar somewhere and you see ants from nowhere, you know, finding the sugar sugar cube, right? If these guys are very certain that there's oil in commercial quantities over there, right, they would head there without the government. They would they would be begging the government, to, you know, to give them a stake in those um, acreage, you know, like they do for the southern acreage. When, when the government announces bid rounds for, um, OMLs and OPLs, you see them jostling for 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 acreage, right? And but nothing like that happens in those um, um, northern basins, uh, the Bainway Basin or in the Chad Basin. Nobody's interested. Nobody wants to spend their money. You know, there is only the government. Anytime you hear that, oh, they, they've you know they found oil or they're exploring for oil, it's all Nnpc spending money, wasting resources, and uh it's it's really sad because these resources could be put to better use you know like in the refineries these refi- our refineries are not producing you know i have friends who who were laid off last year from 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 the ref- you know they they were not direct staff though they were like contract staff but they were laid off because they were basically not doing anything and the the the, the refinery got tired of spending money on their salaries right and I, I, on a personal note, I attended the primary school of the Warrior Refinery, right? And this session, the school had to shut down because nobody's paying attention to the school. The school is dilapidated. No one is spending money to renovate it, unlike what it was when we were when I attended the school, right? That's to tell you that the government is spending money on irrelevant things, channeling millions of dollars to explore for oil in, in. In, in a place where even if they don't know, right, they are banking on luck, not on data, not on you know available data that uh, the amount of oil that is not in commercial quantities, and it's real sad. Um, something else I want to point out is that this may just be political, in that just like Amici and you know the Minister of Transportation, right, they keep um, bringing up projects in the north, right, that would um, in quotes, appeal to Buhari's senses, right? I feel like um, the current Minister of Petroleum Resources, Pierce Silva, is doing exactly the same thing, right? Where he's he's pushing for oil exploration in the north, you know, making these announcements just to make Buhari happy. To what end, I, I cannot really say, you know, because politicians will always be politicians, you know. To what end, I cannot really say, but looking at all the reports, you see that Pierce Silva was the one who announced that Gombe, there was oil in Gombe sometime in November. And, you know, there's oil in Gombe. So, why are you begging for investors? Why are you, why are you the one now uh, appealing to investors to come and invest? If there was oil in commercial quantities, these guys would be the one haggling the minister, chasing him up and down because they want to actually go there. And besides, the world is moving away from oil. You know, it speaks of his, you know, the entire government's in lack of intelligence to always be talking about oil, oil, oil. The world is moving away from oil. We have countries where they've already set timelines to do away with diesel-powered and you know, um, gas-powered, um, four-part vehicles. But so here you are uh, in 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 Nigeria, you want. You're, you're striving for oil, wasting resources that could go to better use, still searching for the same oil. You know, it, it's sad. It's economics and, you know, they, 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 they're getting it wrong. Um, but I think, you know, it's beyond just economics. You know, it's, 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 it's also political. Like I've said, to my I just may I just may be trying to just get in Buhari's good books with all these um, um funny statements and, you know, um, new discoveries of oils in, 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 in the North. That's what I think. Thank you. Thank you, Frank.
0: It's interesting that you you believe that Timmy Silva is trying to get into Buhari's good books by more or less deceiving him into thinking that there's some oil to be found in the North that will generate billions. Now, The, the final question on this topic is to Phoenix. And what I'm trying to understand, Phoenix, is was that this statement, was it controversial? Buhari basically said, in quote, in quotes, now oil has become irrelevant, but we thank God that oil is now discovered in Bauchi and Gombe. And that will help to balance the politics of oil in the country. Now, a number of people have, imp- have on social media and a few newspapers have implied that he was basically saying the North can now counter the South in terms of perhaps political or economic power because they too have oil. Is, is that how you read that statement? Or do, do you think they were being unfair to, to Buhari by interpreting it that way, Phoenix?
1: No, I don't think they were being unfair. I mean, we know his antecedents. This is a man who um, after winning the, the presidency uh, just before he was only, if I remember correctly, on a trip to the US, they asked him a question and he launched into his famous 97 versus 5%. I mean, w- several times. I mean, B- Buhari has shown his sectionalism. Or, I mean, always being quick to, to uh, pull for the north uh, versus the south, always keen to show where he's... His interests lie. So, if people then, on the basis of his antecedents, interpret his statements in a certain way, I, I, I mean, I don't see any. I don't see it being unfair. I mean, you can only, and, and in my view, I, I totally buy that interpretation because this is who he is. I mean, what, what balance is he talking about beyond the fact that um, we know that the reason why. Um, Um, Northerners find the idea of restructuring untenable is because of oil. They see that the oil sits in the South. They don't have oil in in the North. And therefore, if you restructure the, the, the country and put resources in the hands of the people in whose areas the resources come from, they feel they'll be left holding the bag. So in his mind, if we find oil in the North, then we can come and then discuss, you know, whether we want to restructure or not, uh, and, and and be on equal terms. For them, it's always been a case of, oh, I mean, this 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 thing belongs to all of us. Um, we will not let you be the only ones to decide it. We've seen we saw the issue with the PIB bill when it was being signed, signed about to be signed, and the southern governors raised. Um, um, raised an issue and pushed back on the fact that the co- local communities were only going to be given 3% when they had asked for 10% and the Southern governors wanted it to be restored to the 5%, of course he ignored. Because for him, I mean, um, I mean, oil is oil is the be all and end all, and it's the it's the core ingredient to political power in Nigeria because it's the one thing that guarantees easy income. And that's how he thinks. He's he's very oil-focused. If you wake Buhari up at night, there are two things usually on his mind. It's oil and, and the FX rate. Now, those are the two things that, that he thinks about, and everything revolves around that for him. And so the, the search for oil will continue for as long as he's president and he has any influence. He will continue pushing that agenda, one, because he wants to be seen to have given something to the North, and in his mind, that Economic, the economic prospects of finding oil in the North would, would give him, would give them that, and would enable them to be on some sort of equal footing. Not realizing that it is not, it is not the oil that gives you, um, that gives you development. I mean, I keep telling people that. I mean, if you know the UAE well, Dubai, is, Dubai virtually has little or no oil. The real oil sits in Abu Dhabi. And that's where the the wealth sits. But I mean, go look at what Dubai has been able to do from a development perspective. But these people don't have that mindset. It's a it's a one-track mindset, it's it's based on rents, it's based on you know not creating but extracting. And so he can't see beyond the need to to find oil wells where they are unlikely to add any value to anyone. I mean. I think David and Frank have made the point. I mean, anyone who understands the economics of oil, the, the cheapest place to extract oil in the world is Saudi Arabia for the simple reason that, I mean, it's it's in the desert. There's very little um, things that get in the way of, of extracting the oil. So you, <laughs> the cost of extraction is so low that, that's why Saudi can weather the storm and play the games they play with the oil price. So it, it, when we in Nigeria have so much of oil coming out of, you know, the, the Niger Delta or even offshore, it's, it's more difficult for, for, for oil companies to extract. So if they were able to find oil in, in areas in the north where the topography is easier, do you think they won't jump at it? So this this idea that they keep you know you know flying this kite and looking for for this thing I know he hopes that he will find it, but clearly there is no there is nothing that shows that that will happen. Um, but the, but the, he's, not a, he's not he's not he's uh, not worried about throwing good money after bad, and there's no one holding him to account. So it is not controversial what people have said in my view. It is it is uh, it is. Act in the sense that they are talking about Buhari who has proven time and again to be a, a very sectional leader. And, and my hope and prayer is that, I mean, Nigeria recovers from his time in power and we do not return anyone like him uh, to office. Of course, we have enough um, bad actors in Nigeria to know that, I mean, you will, I mean, we would always have our fair share in, in leadership, but let's hope that none of them is as sectional, as clannish, as tribalistic as this guy.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Um, it seems your interpretation is similar to what the majority of people on social media thought, and I think perhaps you're, you're right. Uh, let's hope that we have a new generation of leadership that understands that, first of all, oil is no longer the future. We need to be diversifying uh, the our revenue stream, as well as planting it in the minds of Nigerians, both North and South, that, look, we need to move away from this politics of oil and, and think about other means of developing our, our nation. But our time is up, so... Firstly, I must thank our two guests. Thank you, David. Thank you, Frank, for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting with me. And finally, to our listeners, I once again wish you happy holidays, happy Christmas. And thank you for always being loyal and giving us helpful feedback. Until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days.
2: Thank you.
1: thanks everyone thanks guys for, for joining us and thanks uh, to our listeners again uh, it's a, it's our last show of the year and uh, we look forward to to being with you again um
2: in 2022 have a great end of the year and uh, happy new year in advance thanks everyone